On today's episode, we talked to former DC comedian Andy Haynes. I was really like caught up on my own shit and yeah. I was really like trying to do comedy probably for the wrong reasons a lot of the time. You know, like I really just wanted success and right, I wanted right. these accolades. And now when I look back on it, it's like, like I have friends who are kind of where I was, like friends who just moved to New York. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, you know, why am I not getting this? And it's why I'm not getting that. And it's like, man, I wish I could like show you how valuable this time is, but you should not give a shit about those big things because those big things are just the result. Welcome to the Underground Comedy Podcast with Sean Joyce. For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com. Hey, what's up? Thanks for checking us out. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area and want to see some live stand-up, we've got over 50 shows every month, including headliners and showcases at the Big Hunt and DuPont Circle every weekend. This weekend, Phil Hanley will be headlining. Phil is a Canadian comic, now living in New York. He's a regular at the Comedy Cellar, a great joke writer, and one of my favorite comics to watch. You can get info about all of the shows and tickets to see Phil at undergroundcomedydc.com. Our guest today is Andy Haynes. Andy is a New York-based comedian and writer. In addition to his own half-hour Comedy Central special, he also has been seen on Conan and Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. Andy lived in D.C. during the early part of his comedy life. He was here during a special time when people like him, Rory Scovel, Seton Smith, Aparna Nancherla, and others were laying the groundwork for the scene that exists here today. Andy talks about his early days in D.C. and about pursuing stand-up and trying to find a place that was right for him in the entertainment business. That journey took him back and forth across the country several times before ending up back in New York for a second time and getting passed at the legendary Comedy Cellar. Here's our talk. I moved to D.C. when I was 23 years old. And you came with your parents or you came by yourself? I came by myself. Well, my dad had moved to Annapolis when I was like 10. And I came out here to visit. My plan was... I had started comedy in Seattle, but I was living like 90 miles north. Mm -hmm. And I could tell enough from just like nascent kind of knowledge that I couldn't stay in Seattle. It was all like road dogs. Yeah, It was all just like dudes doing like, like the biggest thing to do there was like a triple run, which was like the, this like network of road rooms that were like really bad. And how long had you been doing stand up before you figured that out? I don't know, six months. It was just You understood immediately. Yeah, it was just like, it felt very stuck in time and kind of like backwards. Um, But then I I ran in, in my little college town, I ran into Robin Williams. He just like was in a, he was in an ice cream shop. Okay. And I like was just like, hey, uh, I just started comedy. What should I do? Okay. And he was like, you should move to San Francisco. Okay. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to move to San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. So I went down and I visited San Francisco and I was like, all right, I'm going to move to San Francisco, but first I'm going to visit my dad. Okay. And I came out to DC with no real plan. I was going to go back to Seattle in like three weeks. Right. And like day two or three of the trip, I was like, I got to hit an open mic. And I went to an open mic and it was like Seton Smith, Rory Scovel, Danny Ruye, this guy Jay Hastings that used to do it here. Mm -hmm. Um... Later on, like a Parna would be there and Hampton. It was at the Soho Coffee House, which okay. is on P Street. Right. Yeah. Very close to, to Big Hunt. Ryan Connor. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was great. It was like the first time I'd seen a bunch of young people that were kind of like me. Right. And they were like ambitious and disciplined. Mm-hmm. It was just like, oh, okay. And it even felt better than San Francisco because San Francisco was amazing, but it still kind of had that like wishy-washy San Francisco thing going yeah, on. Yeah, right. Um, and it just felt like home. Yeah. It was like immediate. And then what part of DC did you live in? Adams Morgan. I moved, uh, I got a job at the DC improv, uh, greeting people. Nice. And like, um, what did I do? I was like greeting people and then I'd work Saturdays in the office. And then I also worked at this coffee shop, Trist on 18th. Oh yeah, sure. And, uh, I found an apartment like really quickly. It was like really cheap. It was like $800 for a one bedroom apartment. Yeah. This sounds sounds perfect so yeah. far. Yeah, and I just was like, all right, I guess I live in D.C. now. And I like, told my girlfriend at the time, I was like, hey, uh, I'm not coming home. Wow. She was not happy. Was she planning on going to San Francisco with you? No, but she had like a cousin there. I think she was planning on like... Visiting a lot. Visiting a lot, or maybe she was planning on going. Yeah, right. It was not a healthy relationship, that's for sure. Yeah. We were both like crazy 
And I mean that in the mental health way, not like yeah. starstruck, crazy. Yeah, lovers. it's tough to it's tough to go back and judge your early relationships because you're so young. And it's like, well, yeah, how would you know how to be in a relationship when you're 22? Yeah, I mean, I think there was like love and, you know, sure. like the right stuff, but also just like codependency. And I always moved too fast. I always was yeah. like, oh, we like each other a little bit. We should like play house. You yeah, know? I think it's a very comic comic way to be yeah i mean it's just like you're looking for any kind of regularity right. in your life yeah yeah and then you also like probably most likely like throw that thing that's been your anchor away as soon as you get some kind of opportunity yeah, right. you're like oh hey i'm going to this other place and you're not invited i see a lot of people. i did that yeah you know? um but um what the fuck was i gonna say uh yeah it was just I moved here and it was great. I was here for like a year and a half about. Yeah, it's funny. It seems, you know, a lot of the people who started out here, are, you know, who've moved on to like kind of big things like Rory and, and you and it's it, you guys were only here for a year or two. Yeah. And it it seems like, you know, you were you guys were like the beat the beginning part of that kind of phase of comedy in D.C. You know what I mean? That there's kind of that there I were think, people earlier. Yeah. We were the first, I think, I mean, and I th I don't, like, I definitely caught that. Like, my, my whole thing with anything, especially comedy, but was just, like, see the people that, like, are doing what you want to be doing and then just make them be your friends. Yeah. And that's just what I did with Rory. I literally wrote him an email. And I was like, hey, man, I don't have any friends here. Can I be your friend? It wasn't that sad, but, right. you know, it was essentially, yeah. like, I don't know anybody and I like you. So. And he accepted your friend request? Yeah, I think he was kind of like... friend request? Yeah, I think he was kind of like, well, uh, yeah, all right, dude, that's weird. You know, because yeah. he comes from, like, college sports. But um, I think we... We... I got to come to DC when a group of young people were doing comedy in a more interesting and independent way. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I think any, any city really relies on that club that's the, at the center of it, you know? And DC improv was, was that for you guys? Yeah. Cause it was like, you need to be able to see good comedy. You yeah. Know? You need to be able to go and watch a comic do an Who hour. Who were the headliners coming through then? Man, it was so good. It was, Chappelle obviously would show up once in a while. This was like right when he became like explosive. Su yeah, super famous. Um, CK, Gaffigan, um, Greg Giraldo, yeah. uh, Patton Oswalt, um, Stan Hope would go to, you know, the Black Cat or something like that. But yeah, it was just, you know, right. The, it's it, it it also wasn't this like you know there was no netflix there wasn't even really like an internet based comedy right. so it was like very much like you had these kind of 10 to 25 headliners that you wanted to see mm -hmm. and you would go and you would kind of like watch them do you know everything you right. would watch the entire show and just like kind of take it in i actually that i got fired from the improv cuz really? i would, i would sit down i would sit down everybody and then your job was to go um, wipe the menus off. Right. And then to go like do other so side that work. That seems like a pointless job. Yeah. And I would just go and I yeah. would hide in the back and I would to watch. watch, yeah. Yeah. I remember this one weekend, probably the most memorable weekend was Berbiglia was headlining. John Mulaney was the MC, and Jay Larson was the feature. Wow. And I just, I watched every single show. Yeah, that's a great show, though. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. How long did you work at the Improv? I think I probably worked in, uh, like, in the on the floor for maybe like two to three months. I Before didn't last you got very fired. long. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't even like a big like. Yeah, right. They were like, like they were mad at you or anything. They were just kind of like, yeah, you're not gonna right help us. I the, the other employees hated my guts, though. All the other servers, but then I worked in the office for probably another six months. Just Wait, on Saturdays. So back then, how often were you gonna were you able to get up during the week? Uh, it started pretty slow, you know. Mm -hmm. It started at just like a couple open mics a night, but I want to say by a year in, every night, a couple times a night, right. sometimes, you know. And w were comics running open mics in in DC back then? Yeah, um, I forgot who ran Soho. They probably would be offended. Um, I can remember everybody that was there. It's funny. I've heard a lot of people talk about Soho. Yeah, I can, but I've never heard of who, think run, of like who ever, ran it. Like Andy would be there, Andy Klein, yeah. and Tim Miller would be there, and um, 
There was this guy, Paul Schorsch, who ran some shows. He's actually famously in uh, that movie Comedian asking... He asked Seinfeld for a picture. Oh, really? And Seinfeld's like, uh, maybe later. <laughs> oh, I remember that part. I remember when he gets asked for the picture and he says no. Yeah, that's uh, that was Paul. Uh, there were so many more funny people. This guy, John McBride, this lady, uh, Diana Saez. Uh, I forgot what Casey's last name was. And then there was um, Kurt Shackelford ran all these rooms. He's still kicking around out here, but he yeah. had a, like a small empire at that time. Right. Um, so those were like a big get. If you, you could get on his good graces, that was a lot do, of stage he time. He did shows out in Arlington also. He did a, a Thursday at the Topaz Hotel, mm-hmm. and then he did a Wednesday at a place called Dr. Dreamos, which was right. insane. Dr. Dreamos was like 200 people for an really? open mic. Yeah, it was crazy. I, and, I hung out there once, but I, I, it was after the comedy show was over. Yeah, it was insane. It was like an amazing show. When you killed there, you know, it felt like you were crushing at the improv. Yeah. And then... Um, there was a couple other rooms. I wasn't in with any of the Diesel and um, was it Wiseacre? What was that place called down in um, Tyson's Corner? Wiseacres, I think. Yeah, I never. I did it once, maybe. Yeah. And that was like a whole other crew of guys, like Rob Mayer and Joe Robinson and Nick Mullen was down there. Yeah. This guy Norm, uh, I think his last name's Wilkerson. He's down in Austin now. He's like a buddy of Doug Stanhope's. Okay, that name sounds familiar. Yeah, I think that's what his name was. Norm, I think it was Norm Wilkerson. But there was like, you know, kind of different crews. There was also like, you know, like a black kind of crew yeah. like, that did black rooms that, you know, occasionally you'd overlap. You'd go play something on U Street. Right. Or you'd go play something up in like Maryland somewhere. But I kind of stayed in the city. I remember on like Wednesday nights, I would... um I would ride my bike down to Arlington to play Dr. Dreamos. Mm-hmm. And then I would ride it really quickly back up to Adams Morgan to play this hookah bar that had a show upstairs. That's cool. Was that what it was? Something like that. Yeah. Was uh, in Arlington Cinema and Draft House had not started yet at that point N- to do comedy. I think they were just about to, but it wasn't, it didn't like, I remember the small room was mm-hmm. just picking up, but I don't remember doing comedy in the big room until I lived in New York yeah. much later on. And I would come down, you know, I think that a lot of, you know, you were saying earlier, like how like me and Rory were only here for like a couple years, but it's like such a big part of our story. I think it's because this was always like a place we could come back to yeah, and really true. get quality stage time. Like when I first moved to New York, and I just couldn't get shows or I was like terrified to try anything new. Mm-hmm. It was like, I would come down to DC and Kurt would give me 20 minutes at the end of Rera, And that was like, that was huge. Right. I mean, um, Kurt's kind of like a polemic figure in comedy because he was like one of those people, if he didn't like you, he just like snubbed you. And that can yeah. be so infuriating. I'm yeah, sure you th- experience that as a booker. There's just people you just don't want to work with. Yeah, definitely. I try to do it a little bit more carefully than Kurt. I've tried to learn a lot of things from Kurt just from the outside in terms of uh, the things that he does that upset people. I try not to do those things. Yeah, I mean, you, you, to some extent you have to. Like but comedy you, attracts insane people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you absolutely have to just not work with certain people. Yeah. But I think the thing that like Kurt would do that would bother people is like he would let them in and he would book them for a while and then he would just stop booking them yeah so i try not to do that yeah because that's like pretty it's pretty rough and also i can see i mean we haven't had an experience where you've had to write me like a mean email but uh you know like i don't think if kurt banned you i don't think he gave you like a sufficient answer yeah i mean i remember one time he banned me oh really and it was because me and kojo uh monte Mm -hmm. were like fucking around in the back of a show sure and it, you know, Kurt has such bad OCD that I think we were like fucking with his Christmas lights, okay, and making a little bit of noise. And he'd warned us like three times, yeah. and then he was like, "You're banned. Get out of here." Yeah. And it was like, "Okay, Kurt, we'll leave." And then I wrote him, and he was like, "You're banned." And then I wrote him again, and he was like, "Just don't do it again," you know? Right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. He seems like a fine guy. Yeah, just just, uh, just is kind of unusual. I think he's he's right about like wanting to protect the quality of his shows. It just happened so that he probably alienated a few people that he could have used as assets. And also, um, I don't know. Positano's was fun. It was full the last time I went yeah, up and I mean, did I th- it. Yeah. I think he's still, he's always been great running, to me. Running so. some good I, I, I think 
most people have a good relationship with him. I think there's just a handful of people that he really upset. Yeah, and they're and, vocal. <laughs> yeah, and then and then there are people that never got in. I I never started doing his rooms. I was just like on the verge of being able to do those rooms when I started running Big Hunt. Yeah, and then I just got busy doing it and wasn't really worried about getting on those shows. Yeah, and then there then we were competing with each other. Yeah, and we kind of had that. And, and he has no room for that. Once you're yeah. the competition, you might as well be. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't feel any need to uh, to push it. It didn't. I I didn't have any need for any more stage time at that point. Because once I started running, I started two at once, and then they kind of multiplied pretty quickly. So it was up immediately more than I could handle. Yeah, it was kind of out of nowhere. I just remember hearing about this room. Somebody recommended it from New York, I want to say. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, like I remember coming here to do the open mic when it was at the opposite end of the room. Yeah. But I don't think I really like fully realized what you were up to until you fully, you know, had your. Yeah, I don't think I, I mean, I didn't set out with that plan at all. I mean, I was just trying to start a Wednesday room. Yeah. Because the Wednesday room I had been going to um, on each street, they shut that bar down and turned it into an arcade. Uh, and uh, and then I had to go to this other terrible Wednesday mic <laughs> that it was just, I couldn't stand being there. I couldn't stand the way it was run. It was just such a waste of everybody's time. And so I was just looking for a place to start a Wednesday room and two bars. I, so I talked to a bunch of bars and two wanted to start a show. So I just did a Monday room and a Wednesday room. Yeah. And uh, it didn't it didn't take very long for like for Big Hunt to get going. And then and I never intended for the Wednesday, uh, Monday room to be good. Yeah. It was uh, a, a place called Townhouse Tavern and it was a gross place that was smell <laughs> like vomit. Um, I think it was upstairs, right? It was downstairs. Is Townhouse on 18th? No, there is a town tavern is on 18th and that has comedy now. Yeah. But this place is called Townhouse Tavern which is on our street. Um, yeah, I don't pretty, think I pretty ever close did it. Here. Yeah, it was, a, it was just a little little room. It only held maybe 25 people. Mm -hmm. and um, But it ended up getting a crowd also, with, yeah. kind of by accident. People started showing up to it, and then there was an actual crowd for it. And uh, then I just kind of realized like how to do it, and then I was like, just added more rooms. Yeah, I think that's something that's special about DC comedy is it like DC itself attracts a certain kind of person. Like mm -hmm. I didn't. Yeah, I it definitely to, does. I moved to DC like on a like kind of just a whim, you know, like it was because of comedy. Mm -hmm. But the reason why it lasted was because like I'm a guy that like likes world politics and yeah. I like like order and I like a little bit of like norminess. And, yeah. You know, and I. I've always like liked that about DC is like, that's like why you can become a good comic here is because people are kind of just like, they're, they're almost like, uh, like policy people, like in the government, you know, where they're yeah, just definitely. like, well, this is not working. So you need to change this. And very like cut and dry. I remember a time, one time we were, I was at, um, Arlington draft house and we were like recording these Comcast specials for like, it was like, you could go on your like local channel on the Comcast okay. box and you could pick like local, something and then there was like comedy mm -hmm. and it was local comics doing sets and i remember they were taping and tim miller was there and somebody was like fucking around mm -hmm. and he he lit them he like he, it wasn't his job he was like on the show yeah, but he yeah. felt like they were affecting the show negatively right. and so he lit them and that was like such a tim slash dc thing to do like let's be practical right now like you're hurting the show this is important to certain people definitely that's yeah. definitely true tim i can totally see tim doing that but i could there's a lot of other people and there's younger comics that have that same attitude now yeah where they uh kind of take responsibility for the show because everybody cares about it yeah i mean it's just it it it's a very like um it's i'm trying to think of the word it's just people you know people get work done here people are used to working right and um you know mo a lot of like kids that went to good schools and they came here for maybe like a job in nonprofits or governments and then they find their way into this yeah that's what i studied public policy yeah and that and same then, work ethic follows you into comedy yeah definitely um what what uh made you decide to go to new york what how did you decide you were like ready to do that well, I went back to Seattle because this really, um, we didn't really have like, I was really enjoying, um, I was really enjoying DC. Like I was, I was having the time of my life, but Allison didn't love me. I was wondering, yeah, I was yeah. going to say, did you start emceeing there? I think I maybe got, 
I don't even think I got an MC weekend. I got one guest set because I like took first on one of the competitions. Okay. And then the guest set was the prize. Okay. And I got one guest set and it was like on a Sunday for Bill Burr. And it was like the, the, the Sunday had been rented out by a nurse's convention. Okay. So it was like an awful show. Yeah. And he, the wheel wasn't being greased at all. Like I, I just wasn't. I because I'd been a bad employee there, I think that they kind of oh, always... They, yeah, they held it against you? I don't know if they held it against me. They just, like, for good reason. Or had reason. a bad impression. Yeah, they you. had a bad impression. So I just didn't think I was going to get any traction with that place. And then my friends were in Seattle, the ones that I'd started with out there, and they were, like, booking, like, bar shows that were getting, like, 200 people every Wednesday. Yeah. And, like, cool people, like hip hipsters. Right, right. And, like, Reggie Watts would pop in, or mm-hmm. Todd Berry would pop in, or um, Eugene Merman, people mm-hmm. like that. And I called my friend Scott, Scott Moran, who's like, uh, he's kind of um, Rory's like creative partner now. Yeah. Like he basically directs all of Rory's stuff. Um, and he was like, we're, we're killing it. Come out here, do this. And so I came back and um, just like stepped into that. But the problem with that was it was like very Seattle in that like some people got some stuff together. But the second it got good, everybody started kind of partying. And, yeah, yeah. Um, it got pretty lazy. It wasn't really How like. How long were you there? I was back for like a year. Okay. And then I was like, okay, well, I got to go again because this is getting kind of rote. And uh, I uh, was going to move back to San Francisco. It was like, okay, oh, okay. now oh, I'm going to yeah, do San yeah, Francisco. Yeah. And then Rory was living in Hoboken. And he goes, hey, we got this apartment in um, Bushwick that we like, but we need two roommates. Do you and Scott want to move? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so... I sent him some money and then I had a house in New York coming up and uh, um, me and Scott both had planned on going because it was like a loft. It was Mm -hmm. three bedrooms, but none of them had doors. They were just like, you know, like a loft space. Right. And uh, so we knew that Rory and Jordan, Jordan is Rory's wife. We knew that they were going to be living together, but we didn't know that we'd be bringing our girlfriends and we ended up bringing our girlfriends. So there was three couples in a loft with no doors um and that was a learning experience there's only one of those relationships that's still together which is rory and jordan um but yeah that's how i moved there and it was like you know it was the best thing and it was the hardest thing because seattle's not like a good place to for some reason seattle can have a really great comedy history there's a lot of really great specials taped there and a lot of really great comics that have either passed through there like you know Hedberg and Gaffigan and Marin all Mm -hmm. had stints there and um some like you know shut up you fucking crybaby was filmed there and a couple other yeah yeah Patton had a special you know the it's changed it's like got a little too woke for its own good now um but it just I don't it just didn't breed a good comic so when I showed up Well, I would say this is what it is. The problem is, is that the clubs in Seattle tend to just be, and this has changed, but at that time it was just like, if you were in a club there, you were a road act. And if you were doing gigs around there for money, you were kind of doing road rooms. Mm -hmm. And so you were kind of like, just like being pushed towards a hackier kind of, or just like more base comedy. Sure, sure. And then the alt stuff was cool, but there wasn't really like a common ground. And so when I got to New York, I had like, you know, I maybe had like 10 to 20 good minutes. I mean, I'm sure I'd like horribly headlined some rooms, but like um, when I got out there, it was like a real learning curve. You know, I had some jokes and it was just like, I I, I did my best couple jokes and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, you completely have to start over. Right. Um, So that was good, but it was, it it took a while. And you started off doing um, like alternative rooms in Brooklyn? I really started out doing mics and then I would get the the odd booking here and there, mm-hmm. you know, like the odd, like, oh, there's a check drop spot at Broadway or oh, okay, yeah. um, this, the Village Lantern, this guy runs a show. He's probably not going to put you on it, but go say hi. Right. Uh, and then there was a ton of mics and it was weird because the mic scene was so funny then because... Uh, you know, that was, you lived and breathed mics. Like that was what you planned on doing every day. Like I, I worked as an office guy for a long time in New York. I worked at a mm-hmm. hedge fund, just not that I have any financial experience, but just, I lied and said, I was like, you know, really versed on Excel and Were you making okay money doing that. Yeah. I was making like $17 an hour or something okay. like that. Yeah. So for like 2008 money, that was good. Yeah. But, um, 
it was just like you'd run after work and you'd go to some bar and it was only comics. And um, I remember the first mic I ever went to was on Grand Street in Williamsburg. And the comics that were there were Mike Lawrence, Tim Warner, Hannibal Burris, Julia Siegel. I know I'm forgetting somebody, but like Julia Siegel is like, I think she's a writer, like a, she's like a book writer person. I mean, Hannibal's obviously right, Hannibal. Yeah, right. Mike Lawrence is like one of the sure. main things. And Tim is a comic still in New York. But then, you know, my crew was Dan St. Germain, um, Mark Norman, Neil Stastny, Zach Sims, this guy, Matt Morano. Uh, I'm trying to think who else ran around that scene. But we are... Uh, me and Nick Turner kind of crossed paths. He moved down here as soon as I moved up there. Later on, we'd be like, you know, inseparable. Right. But, uh, but yeah, it was it was weird. It was just you just did mics and you kind of did them for each other. And how I, much time would you get on those mics? Three minutes. It yeah. was it was ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but then you know, you everybody you worked towards that spot. So there was this show called Comedy is the Second Language, mm-hmm. and that was. Thursday nights at a bar called Cabin on Second Avenue. Yeah. And you just wanted to get that spot. And right, if you right. did well on that, it kind of precipitated other things. So I kind of you were just like these baby steps. You know, like mm-hmm. now in comedy, now that I've done a few things, it's like, what do I want to do next? Well, I would love to do another album. I would like to do an hour someday for some kind of platform. For sure. Um, I would love to sell a show. But back then it was just like, well, I'd love to get this special little spot yeah, i'd love definitely. to do seven minutes on this show that's really hot that's the thing that i love about comedy is that there are so many little steps at each different point in in your doing stand-up life that yeah. you always know what the next thing you're trying to do is it's always right in front of you it's yeah. like it's an obvious what the next step is what the next thing to do i mean you know obviously there you get to certain points where you have to make decisions about what direction you want to go in. But for the most part, you always know what you're working toward and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. I think that I, I agree. I, I just think that the, the biggest mistake that I made was I was not very intentional about what I wanted to do. Yeah. I just knew that I wanted to do it, but I was just like open to anything. So when I moved to New York or to LA, and I got like my first little bit of buzz. They'd be like, what do you want to do? I'd like right. sit down at a meeting with these executives and I'd be like, everything. Yeah. But I'm not like, I'm not like walk in the room. You instantaneously know I'm a star kind of quality. Like, right. Not quality, but just I don't have that personality. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like a longshoreman, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I can work and get a good result. Yeah. But I am not some guy that you just like throw down and magic happens. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And um, so it just it. I, I missed a lot of steps and like, especially like the last, you know, four years after I'd done things and I was kind of in, in LA and I was just kind of like trying to survive a certain quality of life. Right. I just did anything. Like I was just like, oh, I hope I can get a job yeah, on writing. this. I hope I can get this commercial. And it was such a distraction from what I actually wanted to be doing, which I hadn't yeah. even thought about. I was just like, well, if I can get a if I can get this uh job for 6 months on this kids variety show, that'll be enough money to, to like make it through the next thing. Well, it almost seems like those steps are laid out they're laid out for you up until you do a half hour, you know, kind of if that I you know, I don't know that that st- that system kind of still exists, but you're trying to you're trying to get those late night spots, you're trying to get a half hour. Mm-hmm. And then once you do that, then you're kind of on the verge of making a living from stand-up. And then if you if you are able to make a living from stand-up, then it, for a lot of people, it seems like it becomes about continuing to make a living from stand-up. Yeah. And just hanging on. Do you, think, is that, do you feel like that's what happened? I mean, I think that's the general thing. Like, mm-hmm. I think everybody kind of goes, like, with those baby steps, they get bigger and bigger. Right. So once you've started, like, playing everywhere around New York and you're yeah. maybe opening for a comic that's big and you admire... Yeah. And then, like, maybe you're, like, working on a JFL, like a Just for Laughs New Faces mm-hmm. audition. And then maybe you're going to get a late night. And then maybe you want to get, like, now it would probably be the quarter hour. Sure. Um, so you have all those things. And then once you get to that kind of, like, the half hour was kind of the height of where I was at. And after half hour, it's, like, you are, you're, you're really vying for the five spots they have a year for that thing that you want to do. Right. And that's, an hour, which is an hour. 
Yeah, and that's competitive, and that's also like people putting millions of dollars of trust in you. Yeah. So if you're not really like, it, you know, like I think a lot of comics go like, oh, well, why can't I get this? And it's like, I mean, look yourself in the face, and like, are you really doing the work and getting the result of your comedy? And also, is it like cutting edge enough that these people want to like put you as is the one of the five people yeah i have no like i don't sit there and do that anymore i think i used to go like why not me yeah i think most comics do and it's like well no i i haven't like gotten the result that would precede that like right you really got to be buzzing um going back to what you were saying I, though is i think like i think the main thing is is like you really have to if you really want to like do this the the way you want to do it, mm -hmm. you have to know what you want to be doing. Right. Like now, like Aparna, I watched Aparna come up and there was times that I like, I remember I came down to DC and Aparna had been here for years mm -hmm. and she was like uh, wishy-washy about moving to LA. Mm -hmm. Han Hampton had already moved there. Yeah. And uh, I, I just remember her seeing her go up at some like road room, like some Virginia room and just like hating it. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, what is Aparna going to do? But she hadn't changed anything. She did exactly what she wanted to do. And eventually she just found her way. But it was like Aparna never changed. She knew exactly what she wanted to do. And she just held on. Like a better example is like um, Kate Berlant or sure. Kat Cohen or Julio Torres or um, Hannibal is a good one. Like these people that just like, they were so singular. Yeah, and they, they, they never did anything that was like a like they said no a lot like i remember hearing about like one of the legends of gerard was that gerard yeah. would get offered things and he'd be like oh no i don't want to do that that's right. like not part of the plan and that's kind of where you have to do it you got to say no to stuff do you so do you think if you were more careful about the 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 things that you took and you focused more on just going straight forward developing your persona and and what you wanted to do, you think it, you would have been more effective? Yeah, I think that you should really, you should really have a good sense of what you want to do. I mean, I, I don't think I knew until recently. Yeah, I was gonna say, do you feel like you do now? Yeah, I think it's, it's still kind of nebulous. But like, I want to do stand up, and I want to do it at the highest levels there are. Yeah, but the highest level for me is like my highest level. Like, yeah, I love, I just got past like two months ago at the comedy cellar and that's Congrats. been a dream come true. That was like always my like number one thing to get yeah, was the comedy right. cellar. Um, but for me, like, you know, like I want to do an hour. I want to do, um, I want to be like enough of a, of a charismatic character that like people think I'm good for this. Like, panel or like showing up on this festival or um, maybe like having a bit part on their show or their movie or whatever but for me it's like I want to kill every week at this at the cellar yeah. I want to be one of those guys that like people leave the cellar going like oh who is that guy and then eventually just a, a really great comic and I, I I love writing so I think that will always be yeah. part of it but the the stand-up is like the thing I want to do with all of the other things. Do you feel like you held you held yourself back in certain ways in terms of um, in terms of maybe what you talked about or or how you performed? Yeah, I mean, I think I you know I think a lot of it was me thinking things were what people wanted yeah. or would be like marketable or like not being sensitive to like you know I I did a lot of stuff that was like really offensive and I did a lot of stuff that was like cringy or cheap. You know, mm -hmm. and like not really like reading the tea leaves and being like, oh, this is kind of not like a great look. And I mean, you know, I I also just like blew up my life around 2014, like right yeah. when I started to get all the big things. You know, I had a great sitcom writing job and I had just done a half hour, but I. Uh, what sitcom? I wrote for Rory's sitcom, uh, Ground Floor. Oh, right. Wrote yeah, for two TBS. seasons on that. But I got divorced and then I got sober. And like those two things were just like, that changed everything about my life. Yeah. And so, and I think it was like a long, you know, like me getting sober is like about, you know, I, I do it seriously. It's about recovery. And I just had fucked off for like so many years of my life and not really done that hard work. And I'm I'm basically getting there now. And I would say like, now like i mean like the last year has been like yeah the shift for me which is like don't go on stage and fuck around and expect your 
stand-up to get better. I thought your stand-up seemed different last night than it had before. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that I New York's forcing me to work a lot harder. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, LA is great. Some of the best comics are there, but they don't do stand-up there to do stand-up. They do stand-up right. there to do TV and movies. Right. And if they are already on those things, they do stand-up to do something nice at night. So you think that mostly, you know, you, you got those opportunities several years ago and then just personal you just had to deal with personal issues and there was no getting around yeah i just i I, yeah i just don't think i was my best self right and so i think like that just translated to the material and the energy i don't know like not to be too much of a hippie but like i just was depressed and right also like the thing is is like i just i wrote for ridiculousness which those people were great to me but like that's not what i I wanted to do with all that time. I wanted to make that money, but you know, I wanted to make good TV. You know, you want to write for baskets. You want to write for uh, flight of the Concords. You want to write for Brooklyn nine, nine. You want to write for something that you like. Yeah. Fargo, whatever it is, or you want to be on those things or Mm -hmm. you want to tour the best possible kind of like level of comedy. You know, you want to play Melbourne comedy festival and those things. And instead of doing anything really that intentionally, I was just like, doing whatever I could to make money and then maybe going up once in a while at the comedy store and around LA. But like nobody gave a shit. Like yeah. even if I killed on a show, it just never translated to anything tangible. Occasionally somebody would be like, Hey, I saw you last night at the store. I think you're great. Do you want to come in for this? Yeah. And then, yeah, I, it's because I think part of it is that you have to, you have to have the intention, like you're saying behind it, you have to be doing every set for a reason. Yeah. And you can lose it, lose sight of it, and you end up just doing the set. Yeah, I mean, the going back to that, like, those people that are kind of, like, singular, I remember, um, well, like, this is a good example. It's very, it's not remember, but, like, um, this girl, Kat Cohen, who's, like, exploding right now. Yeah. She, like, I, I, I know a little bit. Of, I don't know her, but, like, she's, like, I think she went to theater school, and she's been performing in, like, cabaret stuff for years, and, like, yeah doing character work and then like performing once a week where she's like singing and dancing and all this stuff. And then she's also doing stand up, Right. And she's very unique and very singular. And so like when somebody goes like, man, why is she getting these things? She's not even like that funny or something like that. Yeah, it's like, yeah. well, she is really funny, but also she's like working really hard. She's like treating this like a Broadway production yeah. versus where we're just kind of fucking around going like, do you think this is funny? You know, like, yeah, there's definitely the work ethic pays off. I don't know a lot of people like recording their sets, listening to their sets, writing with friends on a regular basis that aren't seeing development. Yeah, and even having the attitude of wanting to give people a show. Like even if you're not going to sing and dance, there are comics that you can you can see they really have the intention of giving people a show. They're, they they want to put on a show and other other comics really do not have that attitude at all. They're they're just they're just kind of doing stand up. They're just telling jokes and it's and I run into a lot of people that have a kind of take it or leave it attitude. They're mm-hmm. like these are my jokes, you know, if you're not on board with them then, you know, that's your problem. Yeah. And uh I think it's real hard to be successful with that attitude. I mean, maybe some people can. Yeah. I think uh I mean, I, I really don't, like, a lot of people are going to disagree on this, but I don't think it's ever the audience's fault. Almost ever. Yeah. Like, I always think it's the comic's fault because it's, like, it's your job. Like, we're not doing a play. We're doing yeah. something that requires an interaction with an sure. audience. So if they're tired and they're drunk, you got to adjust. And yeah, you got to make the best of it. I'm I, Antoine, the booker at the DC Improv, he booked me on, um like, a showcase show over at... Uh, someplace out in the sticks in virginia mm-hmm. it was like me tim miller um two other guys max amini was there is it martin martin amini yeah martin amini i think there's is his dad somebody's max uh yeah, his cousin is max yeah. amini yeah uh and it was like you know i knew that it was gonna be not great for sure. a lot of the material i did because sure. they were very you know shit yeah, kicker especially country stuff but i was like I got up and I did a couple bits and I could feel them pull back on certain things. And it's just like the decisions need to be made there, but you can't ever go like, well, if you don't fucking like this, your problem, it's like, it drives me crazy. That attitude. 
when they won't give me anything, sometimes I'll go back to the thing of like, well, I do a certain thing and like, you got to like, sure. You know, and I also get when it's hopeless. I get when there's nothing you can do or the room is out of control mm-hmm. and it's, you know, then, then that's fine. But there's just the, there are people who go to that so fast. They go yeah. to that attitude so fast. As soon as they run into any difficulty, they start, they start going after the crowd and kind of give up on trying to make it work. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the, the people that I know that are the best at this besides like, I don't think Nick Mullen has any, like, (laughs) I don't think Nick Mullen is like hoping that people have a good time that night. Like, I don't think, I I don't think that Mullen, no, I don't think he thinks that at all, but I do think that Mullen wants to have a good set. He wants to have the quality of set. Like, I think he's a consummate enough comic like that. But what I mean is like, um, the people that I know that are like the kind of, he's a, I was, he's an unusual person. Yeah. He's a unique, like kind of a, a evil genius right figure, but like, you know, I know Rory is like approaching comedy as like a gift. Like he's really he really wants to make people have a like a wonderful evening. And Todd Glass is like that and John Doerr. That's why those three guys click so much. Yeah. Um Yeah, you know, like going back to that like personal stuff, I I, I think that so much of my stuff, like what held me back was I was really like I was really like caught up on my own shit. And yeah. I was really like trying to do comedy probably for the wrong reasons a lot of the time. You know, like I really just wanted success and right, I wanted right. these accolades. And now when I look back on it, it's like, like I have friends who are kind of where I was, like friends who just moved to New York. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, you know, why am I not getting this? And it's why I'm not getting that. And it's like, man, I wish I could like show you how valuable this time is, but you should not give a shit about those big things because those big things are just the result. Like doing a late night set is not a hard thing. Doing a late night set is easy. Mm-hmm. getting to the place where somebody sees you in the wild and thinks that you're good for late night. Now that's the the hard thing. Yeah. Like going up in New York bars and being so singular and so funny and so great that some guy goes, Oh yeah, we got to have him on. Yeah. And also being a human, you know, like being able to like, don't be fucking drunk and stoned and expect like some guy who's a business person to be like, Oh yeah, I want to work with this train wreck of a yeah, human right. being. People can do it. You know, sure, we know a lot of comics, yes, of course. but, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, real regular shit that goes into making comedy good. Yeah, definitely. And you can see, you can also see when you look at people who are so funny and they're, they're not getting things and then you look at other people who are kind of not quite as funny, but they just, they have their shit together more yeah. and they're doing the things that they need to do and they're in the right places and uh, following through on things. And it's kind of, it's kind of easy to see from the outside yeah. why, why things are going the way they're going for different people. Yeah. Like, you know, write an email, right? Uh, ask somebody you look up to for advice. Uh, make sure that you don't look like shit. Right. You know, like just those little things. Yeah. Don't be the guy at the after party full of the executives making a fool of yourself. Right. You know, like those little things go a long ways. Uh, How about when you start working at the improv, you know, don't, don't get fired. Yeah. Don't <laughs> go, go work, work at the, the comedy yeah. club and then be the worst employee they have. Yeah. <laughs> or you make it harder to get the MC weekends. Yeah, for sure. You Your comedy seemed... I don't know if it was more political, but it, it seemed somewhat political last, last night. night. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just had done um, that Comedy Central this week at the cellar taping mm-hmm. twice in the last month. And so I was like writing more topical oh, okay. stuff. I see. I do feel like, you know, I want to talk about politics. It's just so hard to do it in a way that isn't pedantic. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I, definitely. I want to talk about all this stuff, but I know that like, it's so hard because the conversation right now is like just like everybody's at like a screaming level. Yeah. But like realistically, it's like everybody's just kind of afraid and they have like very like tangible reasons to be the way they are. Even the most pig headed assholes, like it's just like a failure of society. So if you approach that with more empathy, I think um, and, and that being said, like I don't want to do comedy that I, I say some things that are pretty like harsh up there because i do it's like very obvious on what side of the the line i think you should be on but at the same time like 
I don't think we've ever won any um, fans by being like, you're a fucking idiot and you're stupid course, yeah, and everything yeah. you value is dumb. And you know what I mean? Like, so that was a really long winded answer. But well, I think it w- I, I thought it was interesting to hear and I thought that it, it worked well. Yeah, and it's a tough thing to do. And it's especially in D.C., it's tough to talk about politics. People, you know, they generally don't want to hear about it, but it doesn't mean that it's impossible to do it. Yeah, I mean, I would like to I would like to get to a place where I could talk about politics without so much like I'm pretty angry when I talk about yeah. politics because I do have a very like, you know, I want to be like I on a human level, I understand it. But like on a reactionary level, I'm, you know, I just want to like make it so some people can't vote. <laughs> you know, Yeah, like, right. I, of course. Like, you know, I'm just like, well, you're an idiot. You shouldn't be able to vote right. like you. You take a picture where you're kissing your gun like I don't want you to vote. Yeah, I thought that, uh, but you didn't. You didn't come across angry to the point where it was alienating the crowd. I don't think. No, and I mean, you also benefit from it being DC, and yeah. you know, even that, like, whatever that was, I forget. Like, I'm not sure if it was like Reston or M- Manassas. I think it was Manassas, Virginia. I don't think anybody left there hating me. I yeah. think they maybe disagreed with a lot of the stuff I was saying, but I, I don't think you got to figure out a way to make people laugh at things they disagree with. I think that's the easiest right. way into kind of doing a shift. Yeah. It's like agree. not being super, you know, just like acting, you know, I don't know everything. I, I, I know very little. I'm like, it's easy for me to say like, I don't care about taxes and the economy because I don't have right. any money to worry about. Yeah, and right. I work a job that's completely non, it doesn't really matter if like the real estate market's booming. Yeah, People are right. still going to want live entertainment or at least something. Yeah. You know? Right. Right. So, um, the racism stuff's pretty easy. That's yeah, like, you of know. course. It seems. Uh, I mean, it seems like you like you turned a corner stand-up wise. It's good to hear that the attitude you have toward it now. Yeah, I think um, just you got to get out of the results. You know, you got to get way more into the process. Like that's great. You can't expect. Uh, the second I stopped caring about all this stuff and started being more like, well, I just want to get up on these shows to do well and. Um, I want to be in New York and have like kind of this quality of life and I'm going to stop thinking that all these things mean certain things. I mean, this is like one thing if a young comic hears this is like, don't worry about money because like it's, it's, it's cool to make lots of money and it's cool to have those nice things and you're going to have friends that make hundreds of thousands of dollars. But realistically like most of us fit into the category of artists and there's not a lot of artists that get to make a lot of money yeah it's like you're making a sacrifice you're choosing a path that is not traditional yeah you know like most people when they work in a in a job they go monday through friday nine to six and they have very specific things and if you choose comedy it's like then why would you expect to make like a great living like, yeah, you're already you getting the, the cool thing. You're getting this cool thing. You work a couple hours a week, maybe. Yeah. You know, you can be stoned half the time. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just like... Yeah, it's, definitely. It's not traditional, so don't expect a traditional... I totally agree. Yeah. And what, I feel like once you... The thing for me is like once you start hanging out with comics and getting to like live in that lifestyle a bit, it's very difficult to go back to a regular job or imagine just sitting in an office and interact like, you know, going through office talk and all of that stuff. It's kind of unimaginable. It's like, it's a, it's a benefit in itself being able to continue. Yeah. I think Lauren Michaels said, uh, he said, don't take breaks because your job's a fun job. So don't, don't think you deserve a vacation because you're basically already on it. Yeah. You know, and I also, um, I just think like, you know, there's a, the, I think it's good to treat it like a normal job. Like I, I, sure. like, I think like Tommy John again, I think that guy like approaches yeah. comedy, like he's getting ready to like do a dissertation, yeah. you know? Um, I know guys that like go through comedy sets and they go like, I should have used an instead of a uh, mm-hmm. there or like they count their uhs and things like yeah, that. Yeah. That's just too much for me. I don't ever right. want to be that like tied into it, but you know, they get the results of somebody that would do that. Yeah, you know? I, get, I get locked into that of worrying about every word like that. Yeah, it's smart. Yeah, in a way, but it's also limiting. It's, it limits your performance to an extent. Well, it's just like the different things. I remember right. th- th- this comic, um, 
couple weeks ago I was in like Brooklyn and this comic who's like he's fantastic I bet he's worked this room I don't want to like call him out okay because um he's you know I don't know if he'd want me to talk about it but he was saying like uh we were going into a show and he was like ah man I gotta go and like work on this Fallon packet Mm -hmm. and I was like what are you trying to do and he was like "Ah, I just you know whatever and I was like you're not right for that job at all like why would you do that like yeah yeah um the the people that write for fallon they wake up they got to be there at 7 a.m and they have to have like 75 jokes by noon or something yeah yeah like it's literally yeah, like that machine and this guy's like a big goofy loud performer right so why would he be trying to go do tight monologue jokes like it's, yeah it's very like Marty litwack is a guy who like that's a monologue joke writer like right. you can see it all over like he writes tight little incubus jokes yeah you know and it's like incubus i don't know if that's nucleus i i don't know what incubus is he writes jokes about incubus um no but you know I think like it's a it's like a sex uh demon or something is it well uh, that's not what I, what I meant was he writes very structured deliberate jokes yeah, that yeah. are like word economy pacing things like that where some people can just get up and like they can just like spit whatever's in their head and crush and that's not a guy that should write monologue jokes. yeah i totally agree yeah people get wrapped up in just getting a big job yeah even if it has nothing to do with what they should be doing yeah it's uh, and i did that i did that for 10 years right. I, I was worried about every single i'm going to be 14 years into this in two weeks and i spent a lot of times trying to like chase things that i had no place chasing yeah you know i my best my best stuff is doing stand-up as best as i can and 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 figuring out which i think is still developing quite a bit i think the stand-up that i'll be in five years is going to be a much different stand-up than i am today the you know sense of humor the goofiness will still be there but and then my other job is really like is like i'm great in a writer's room for when you need that joke yeah and definitely. I sit back and then you go andy what would be funny here and i know my strong suits so i'm gonna just try to like you know thrive in those things but i'm not gonna do that thing anymore where i try to go like well i, I could try to be that kind of comic because that's just such a waste of time yeah definitely well i thanks so much for uh having the talk man yeah dude and be nice to sean you guys <laughs> thanks man <laughs> all right bye For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com.